This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. A new federally mandated report on climate change has been released, and it shows that humans are causing many of the issues with our changing climate. Yet the White House did not do anything to suppress the reporting. They also didn't say much about the report in general, which holds in line with, with in a line, I should say, which, with which President Trump has taken towards the issue of climate change in general. To discuss this report, we are joined by Bob Kopp, who is a director of the Institute of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at Rutgers University. He was also one of the lead authors on the report. Also with us, Eric Ortz, professor of business studies and legal ethics here at Wharton. He's also director of the Initiative for a Global Environmental Leadership and also also with us is Daniel Kamen, who is a professor of energy at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, Eric, great seeing you again. Thank you very much for your time today. Good Thank to be you. Here. Yeah. Bob, Daniel, great to have you with us on the phone today. Thank My you. Pleasure. Bob, let's start with you. And I guess since you are part of this report, uh, give us an overview of what was actually in it. Sure. Um, well, let me start by saying that this report uh, is now currently the most up-to-date uh, comprehensive report on climate science um, anywhere in the world, coming uh, three years after the last national climate assessment and four years after the last intergovernmental panel on climate change report. Um, it builds upon a number of advances in the literature that have happened over the last several years, but fundamentally its core messages are not new. Climate change is real. It is predominantly caused by human activity. It is having effects on the United States. And those effects will grow worse the more carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we emit. Mm -hmm. It does have a whole bunch of new odds that we can say about things like um, the way climate change influences individual weather events, um, sea level rise and, and its influence on coastal flooding, um, and the potential for us to be surprised uh, by the climate system. But its fundamental messages are things that you know, we've already known for a long time. Eric, this really, I mean, we've talked about this numerous times. This, uh, this reporting is not necessarily a surprise to you in any way, shape, or form. No, it's not a surprise, but I, well, I'd like to thank uh, Bob and the other authors. They're pulling together what the most recent science is saying. I think the main thing that I took from reading it is that you, a lot of these conclusions are just becoming more certain. So uh, uh, scientists are very careful to say what's, uh, what's extremely likely, what's probable, et cetera. And as you read this report, there are, there are statements like uh, the, the lead, which is that it's extremely likely that human activity is causing climate change. And so the, that consensus seems to be only growing. And there are number, there, there's real evidence about this. This is not based just on some uh, computer modeling or speculation. You have increasing numbers of science, uh, of scientific studies and reports that are drawing on a, a number of different areas mm -hmm. uh, that are confirming this, uh, this news. So the, the policy and business conclusion is that uh, you need to, if, if, you're, if you're still in the dark on this or somehow uh, not wanting to uh, look at the reality, the reality's here, the costs are high. So one, one number that popped out at me in the report is that since 1980, uh, costs, uh, economic costs of extreme events, uh, not counting some other effects in, in, of, of climate change, are $1.1 trillion. So this is not a joke. It's something that businesses need to be thinking about in terms of resiliency planning, mm -hmm. uh, what's it going to mean for them in the slightly longer term uh, 
uh, perspective, and uh, as well for uh, as well as uh, for citizens to take account of. Dan, what was your reaction to the report, and also what was your reaction to basically nothing being said by the White House? Well, in terms of the report, I've been uh, working within the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's the international version of the same thing since 1997. And this is exactly in line with what that international group, uh, many U.S. scientists and many other nations have been finding with increasing certainty, as Bob said, since then. So there's nothing that I think is surprising in the report um, in terms of the science, which is what we'd expect. It's a progression. But it really, this report really drives home the very high costs to the U.S. in terms of droughts, in terms of fires, sea level rise, and in particular, the degree to which air quality issues are getting worse, costing us health. We've seen the rises in many air-related um, air illnesses, um, asthma and other things due to ozone levels, due to pollution we're seeing due to our own power plants. And actually, we routinely observe in California and other parts of the U.S., increased pollution levels coming from Chinese power plants. So it's a global story. So the science is stark. The costs are high. And in terms of the sort of non-federal response, this report was brilliantly leaked, in my opinion, to Lisa Friedman, a reporter at the New York Times um, several weeks ago. And because that entire document was available, there really was no way to run from it. It's, right. been, it's been written by really significant authors within the government, universities like Bob, um, researchers across the United States, in and out of government laboratories. And so there's no running from it. And so I think it's no surprise that the administration has chosen, I would say, its only other route, which is to ignore and minimize. But this is the fact of the land scientifically. And as you heard um, just a second ago, the economic costs are not something that are going to start happening in a few years. These are large costs to the U.S. now. Mm -hmm. Those costs are going to only going to get higher. And the more we ignore everything from changing sea level to changing weather patterns, we simply do so at an economic and a job loss. And it's a loss that affects the poorest working class Americans the most. And so it is really a case of impacting those people who can least afford to pay if we choose to ignore what is now the global consensus story of the science. Eric? Yeah, I think, I think that's all correct. I think that um, one thing that one hopes to see as you have more and more reports like this and, and more and more discussion about it is that public opinion will start to embrace this issue. Uh, as uh, as I think is pretty clear to everyone, there right now the Trump administration is opposed to any kind of serious climate regulation, and uh, right now the EPA, for example, is uh, attempting to delay and and potentially replace the Clean Power Plan. That's the that's the centerpiece of a, of the Obama uh, uh, approach to some kind of rational climate change uh, climate change regulation in the United States. But I think. Uh, I think that eventually what this report indicates and the fact that the Trump administration could not really suppress it uh, is that the science is clear and, the, and eventually mm -hmm. uh, it's going to have an effect. I mean, right now, I think, um, to, paraphr to paraphrase Upton Sinclair, 
I, I think a politician, if a politician's, uh, uh, it's difficult for to get a politician to understand something when his reelection is going <laughs> right. to depend on it, right? right? So the problem is that the politics of the support for the, for Trump was based on this denial of climate change. There's a lot of um, special interests who are intent on burning as much fo- fossil fuel as they can and making mo- as much money as possible within the window of uh, feasibility as they can that's driving this. But eventually, I think um, the science will, will out. And one other development that's important to note on the, on the political side is that uh, now, the United States is now the only country not in, that has said that it's going to withdraw from Paris. Right. So f- effectively, every country, including the United States, is now in the Paris Agreement. The United States is under the terms of the agreement, cannot withdraw. So the best interpretation is the Trump administration has said it's going to withdraw. But now Nicaragua and Syria, who were the only other outliers, have signed on. So at this, you know, I think it's becoming clear that this is not going to be a uh, position that the United States can be able to maintain over time. And so the, the punchline then for many, uh, from, the, from a business perspective, is that you should uh, you should really think forward on this issue and and examine. Obviously, if you're if you're in the um, if you're in the coal business, this you're gonna you know, you're not gonna have a very strong interest to take to go sure. go in this direction. But yeah. for other businesses who are maintain who are continuing who are thinking about going forward, and uh, they should start to think about what the costs are. Uh, as I said before, develop resiliency planning. Uh, and uh, I think you know one other thing I'd, I'd like to mention is that it, it does seem with the Trump administration, unless um, unless it's possible that the states, local governments, business, et cetera, do an end run around the Trump administration, which we talked about before, it's possible that there would be enough uh, uh, consensus on this issue that that the U.S. would comply to its Paris agreements anyway, right. even, even if there's a, a a retraction of the federal level uh, regulations. But if that doesn't happen, then um, we're going to have a conference in April that takes it, takes the idea seriously. What happens if we live in a world of a, a three three to four degree centigrade increase, which is prop the most likely uh, near term mid, near to midterm scenario? If you don't do anything, right. uh, if you if if uh, and I think increase there's at least that probability that we have to start to look at, and um, and the and this kind of science is absolutely necessary to ground those kind of informed business decisions right. and uh, and consumer and citizen decisions. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. In studio with Eric Ortz of the Wharton School, professor of business studies and legal ethics, and uh, also joining us on the phone, uh, Daniel Common, professor of energy at the University of California, Berkeley, Bob Kopp, who is uh, director of the Institute of Earth, Ocean, and Atmosphere- Atmospheric Sciences at Rutgers University, and one of the authors uh, on this report. Uh, Bob, not that this is necessarily your bailiwick, but I would be interested to get your opinion that you're bringing forth all of this information and to an element, uh, to a degree, uh, politics are, are, are standing in the way of really kind of trying to drive force a, a good bit of change. I, is there a level of frustration in putting, uh, you know, this, this information forth, this scientific information forth and having it to a degree pushed to the side? Well, um, let me say a couple of things. So first of all, it's important to realize there are many authors for the national climate, or many, many audiences for the national climate assessment, of which this report is volume one. Um, volume two on climate impacts and adaptation was released for public review on, on Friday and is due out at the end of next year. Um, and, you know, 
the audience for that is a nation as a whole. It's not just uh, the federal government. Um, the National Climate Assessment has historically played a major role at the state level and at local level. And um, the second volume of the National Climate Assessment has a real regional focus. Um, so there are, are many audiences for this, uh, some may paying more attention than others. Um, the other thing is that while it is extremely valuable, I think, to have authoritative assessments of the science, um, there's also a large body of work on what affects people's uh, opinions on climate science. And, and it is, it's fundamentally true that, that we're not, you know, writing new reports is not a th going to change people's opinions. The reports are for using, right? They're, they're there to inform decisions by people who have recognized that this is a problem and want to know what the details of the science are. You don't need a 500-page report uh, to tell you that climate change is real and caused by, by humankind. Um, you need the 500-page report if you want to know the details of how the climate change might affect uh, particular places and therefore be relevant to particular decisions. And, and, um, and it's, it's not like, Bob, that we're talking about one or two areas of the country or of the world where this is, you know, going to be felt the worst. I mean, there are elements of this that are going to impact Florida and California and, and the Northeast and, and other parts of the world as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All parts of the country are going to be affected by climate change. Um, you know, the, the global average temperature has risen by 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit since 1900, um, and it's going to continue to rise by multiple degrees Fahrenheit um, even if we, uh, you know, significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, one of the key messages of the report um, is that the window of time, uh, if we want to hit a target like the global 2 degrees centigrade, uh, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit target, is closing. We have about 230 billion tons of carbon that we can emit remaining if we want to do that. And right now we're emitting about 10 billion tons globally a year. Um, so, uh, you know, this is something that affects everybody, both through the impacts and through the actions needed to reduce emissions. Um, that said, uh, some parts of the country uh, will be harmed uh, more, by, more than others. Um, this is going a little bit beyond this report, but, but work um, my collaborators in the Climate Impact Lab and I have done um, earlier this year uh, showed that the economic effects of climate change fall preferentially hard on the southeast of the U.S. Uh, relative uh, to, say, the northwest or more northern states that, that, that start out with cooler climates. Um, so this is something that affects everybody, um, but, but it is also true that there are considerable uh, inequities on where it falls uh, but especially globally, but even within the U.S. Within the Southeast, is the greatest concern the sea level rise? Um, so, again, this is this is this is drawing on our, our, our research group's work rather yeah. than the, the, the study. Um, but uh, the human health effects uh, were really the dominant effect uh, in in our analysis, and then for coastal areas like Florida, um, coastal is also a major impact. But but you know there are a lot of states. Uh, that are not coastal, that are still uh, can be extremely affected by heat 
and by drought and and intense precipitation. Eric, you want to add something? Well, yeah, just to uh, just to add to that. So so it's helpful, and I would really encourage people who are interested, and in, including in the business community and, and and otherwise, to read the report. It, it provides a really good summary of all the different effects. But just going down the list, uh, you can imagine why this has effects uh, for important uh, information for business planning decisions. So, you know, the the increasing temperatures, uh, heat waves, um, it's going to make it a lot less attractive to go to Phoenix, for example, than, as was mentioned, north the northeast or northwest. So precipitation events and floods and planning for those uh, when you're building new facilities. Um, droughts, wildfires are, are expected to increase. Um, and we've seen the potential impacts of those in, in the West this past uh, this past season. Uh, the coast, locating on the coast seems generally, you know, if you're, if you're locating new facilities or moving to cities that have uh, have exposure, then you better think twice or at least factor in those risk effects. Um, cities themselves who are in these situations are going to be better in terms of competing for businesses that come to them uh, to, the, to, to the extent that they can be more resilient and they can uh, adapt to these kinds of challenges. Uh, sea level rise, we already mentioned. Uh, availability of water. So the, there's, uh, it's now increasingly well documented that glacier and snowpacks are decreasing. So uh, if you're, if you're uh, moving to one part of the country or another, you have to look at what the risks are for uh, increased drought events. Uh, so there's a lot of these different factors um, that are important for planning that you have to start to factor into decision-making process, both at, both at the public policy level, at the local as, and state level, as well as uh, business decisions and uh, if, if you're going to have any kind of long-term time horizon and what those decisions are. Dan, uh, unfortunately, because of, of seemingly the path that, that this administration wants to take, uh, the expectation is we won't see a lot done here in the short term. Uh, can can we wait potentially three years or four years if there is a new president in that period of time? Uh, can we wait to to you know get back on a path uh, kind of similar to what President Obama was doing prior? Well, I mean, my own personal view is that as a country, for reasons far beyond just climate change, we shouldn't wait to make a change right. at the top. But that that aside. Um, it would be it would be a mistake to wait for a variety of reasons that you just heard from from, from the other commentators, and that comes from a di- from a number of different forms. One is that we now know a great deal more about the local and the regional effects of climate change, something that computer models previously didn't have the resolution to look at, and the data records weren't enough to uh, to extrapolate what changes we're seeing. That is changing in the United States and globally, and you heard a little bit of that in the previous comment. But what it means in many, uh, in many locations is that um, current agricultural practices, the amount of water that's going to be either needed to be drawn additionally from, from, from aquifers and from groundwater, or that we will need to build resilience into agriculture, into forestry, into livestock issues, all that is going to need new investment. And so to leave this to the federal government to, to you know, for when it might act under this administration or the next, um, would simply put U.S. businesses and individuals, and in particular lower-income individuals, even further behind while the rest of the world is accelerating their investment. And so if we have to wait another three years, that would be um, a significant economic blow to the United States. But 
we're seeing in a number of places. Uh, California, Washington State, New York, a number of others have um, announced that they are actively still in the Paris climate process. Uh, uh, I was just at the Vatican this past week with not only uh, my governor, Jerry Brown, but also Kevin DeLeon, the head of the California Senate, both of whom gave very eloquent speeches um, backed up by bills and by funding um, in our state and efforts going on, again, Washington, Oregon, elsewhere, about investing now in this. And the impacts on health are something that we have always known in some detail, but this report makes exceedingly clear that we are already paying a health cost um, and that that's something that is going to be borne by cities and states if the federal government doesn't act. The last piece of that story is that we've already seen around the world that no matter what one thinks ideologically about fossil fuels versus renewables, which I always thought is a funny divide because these are really just different technologies that make money for the companies that build mm -hmm. them and operate them. Um, some emit carbon and methane and things. Others do not. But that we're seeing the rest of the world doubling and tripling down in their investments. So China uh, announced earlier this year a $360 billion additional investment in solar and wind and batteries for electric vehicles as a way to take advantage of the growing global demand. And they've also become the largest site of solar and wind power installed. So they're not just doing it for export, they're doing it for their domestic energy mix. My lab works with the Chinese government, the Kenyan, the Mexican government, the government in Bangladesh, the government of all 20 Western states, plus um, British Columbia and Alberta. And we are seeing that the economics are, are becoming increasingly simple. The cheapest power plants installed anywhere in the world last year were actually solar plants installed in Arizona, in Mexico, in, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, um, and wind power plants that were installed in Chile and in Morocco and in California and Texas. And so the economic reason to act, even if one tries to leave out the this unfortunate ideological divide around climate change, is really compelling. And all nations are in bond this week at the 2018 climate, uh, 2017 climate summit, um, and at that meeting, we are seeing each of these issues really being highlighted: the benefits of investment in clean energy at the level of distributed solar to large arrays, um, a wave of innovation in energy storage technologies, of which you know, forward-thinking companies around the world are putting major investments in so they can be leaders in everything from electric vehicles to large storage facilities that would basically make solar and wind baseload by allowing us to store a significant fraction of that. And so if the administration here in the U.S. does choose to wait, they're really only saying that not only are they ignoring the science, but they're ignoring the business opportunity to be a leader. Right. No matter how much a U.S. company wants to step ahead and just sort of ignore the foolishness going on in Washington, D.C., you are at a disadvantage when, you're, when the government in, in Norway, Denmark, China, South Africa is supporting your company's play in this area. And so this is really um, a massively uneconomic, anti-business sector move. Um, which we've just in the U.S. wrapped in and really unfortunate shroud of ideology over not just the basic science, but also the basic business opportunity. Bob, anything you'd like to add there? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think one important thing to keep in mind that's coming out of this is that this is really a problem of risk management. Right? On the one hand, we have a suite of risks, some of which we can quantify relatively well and some of which we can't, and I want to expand on that in a second. And on the other hand, we have the tools to manage those risks through some combination of adapting to them and mitigating them. Uh, the larger we let these risks grow by continuing to emit greenhouse gases, uh, the more we'll have to adapt to and the, and the more expensive that will become. Um, it's important to, to remember that, that adapting to, to climate change uh, may help with some of the impacts, but it is certainly not free and can come at a significant cost. Um, one of the key findings of the report that, that's relevant to thinking about this has a, has a risk management problem is this idea of potential surprises, right? So, so there are some things that we can do a reasonable job of estimating has risks, um, effects on temperature, on heat wave, uh, to some extent on, on, on rainfall. Um, there's others where there is some significant fat tail risk that we don't really know how to, to quantify. Um, one example of that is in sea level rise. Uh, the report finds that uh, sea level will very likely rise by between half a foot and 1.2 feet over, over between 2000 and 2050, uh, which is an example of sort of what I would call a more quantifiable risk. Um, it also finds it's very likely that it will rise between one and four feet over the course of the century. Um, but there's also a possibility that Antarctica could be less stable than we think, and we could see numbers as high as eight feet, especially in a high emissions future. So that's an example of uh, these more sort of fat tail uh, potential surprises, such as Antarctic instability. The report also notes uh, that sort of potential surprises can arise when constellations of extremes start coming together. When we say start seeing three hurricanes and massive wildfires at once, yeah. uh, the combined impact can be larger than if we just were dealing with those events one at a time. Um, and these compound extremes are something that haven't been much looked at in the literature, but that people are increasingly will realizing are, are an important risk uh, to think about. Um, and finally, you know, there's the fundamental risk that the further we push the climate system away from its historical conditions, um, the greater the possibility it might surprise us. The climate models have a good degree of difficulty replicating some of the warm climates in the, in the geological record, uh, which suggests there may be important elements missing from them that may be leading us to underestimate how sensitive uh, the climate is uh, to, to future warming. Um, so all of these point to sort of the need to think about climate change as a risk management problem. And it's a risk management problem where our core tools are limiting our greenhouse gas emissions and adapting uh, to the impacts that we don't manage to avoid by limiting our emissions. Eric, a final comment? Yeah, just just to reinforce the risk management point, which I think is important, but uh, also particularly for businesses. I think one explanation for businesses sometimes staying on the sidelines on this issue is that they generally see regulation in some kind of an rand sense where you don't like it. Uh, but this is an issue that not only can businesses proactively, and some of this problem will be solved just by economic change and decreasing cost of solar, wind, et cetera. But also, businesses need to see that this is an externality that requires some government intervention. And mm -hmm. government is not always bad. Sometimes you need to, <laughs> sometimes you need to have uh, step in to control externalities of this kind and, and to prepare for the kinds of surprises and other adverse effects that, we, that we're seeing in this report. Great having you all with us. Unfortunately, I have to end it there. Thank you, Bob. Daniel, thank you for joining us on the phone today. All the best. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Eric, great seeing you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks. Bob Kopp uh, joining us on the phone from Rutgers University, as did Daniel Common, who is uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, and here in studio with Eric Ortz of the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.